Hi everyone, and welcome to the first of our Dead to Rights holiday episodes, Season 1, Episode 50, titled Kitty Claws to the Rescue. If you're like me, at this very moment you are lying to yourself, telling yourself you will never again eat another piece of chocolate. Seriously, we were blessed with a terrific holiday at Shea Carrick, filled with family, friends, food, and all the fixings. But now it's time to get back to business, and here at Carrick Publishing, our business is the book business. Our love for books, stories, and authors is real and deep, and it extends with genuine gratitude to all readers who are the cornerstone of this shared passion. Without you readers, we writers and publishers would be whistling in the wind. We'd still do what we love to do, because, hey, a painter's got to paint, a builder's got to build, and a writer's got to write. But without you, dear and beloved readers, we would be the proverbial tree falling in the forest. So, on behalf of all our Carrick authors and authors everywhere, I'd like to extend a very special holiday greeting to you readers. Remember, these days it's not hard to touch base with your favorite writers. Most can be found online, and they love to engage with their readers. If you hear a writer speaking on Dead to Rights, and you'd like to ask a question or pass on a comment, please let me know. I'll be happy to pass your message on. I can always be reached at carrickpublishing at rogers.com, but I do get a fair bit of spam email, so please say Dead to Rights podcast in the subject line. That way I'll give your message highest priority. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you an interview with E.C. Frey, Elizabeth Campbell Frey, author of The Entangled Moon. I'll also be reading you a light-hearted crime story by one of my favorite authors, titled Kitty Claws to the Rescue, by none other than Rosemary Aubert, author of the highly acclaimed Ellis Portal mystery series. Today's featured author, Elizabeth Campbell Frey, has worked in Fortune 500 companies in positions dealing with systems analysis, project management, human resources, employee relations, and affirmative action. After surviving cancer, she switched gears, and during her studies for a master's in history and non-Western cultures, she focused on water rights and resources and completed a thesis on the doctrine of discovery and land issues in Indian country. Born in the Philippines to chronic expate parents, she has lived in too many places to name, but now resides in Texas Hill Country with her husband, two gypsy-hearted kids, dogs, cows, chickens, a horse, and a swarm of transient kamikaze hummingbirds. So please give a huge Dead to Rights welcome to Elizabeth Campbell Frey. Hello? Hello, is this E.C. Frey? It is. How are you? I'm well. Good morning, Liz, and thank you for coming to Dead to Rights this morning. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I wanted to talk to you this morning about your book, which is coming out in June 12th, I believe, called yeah. Entangled Moon. Now, um, yeah. can you tell me, is this your first book? It is. 
Excellent. Congratulations. Wow, a really new <laughs> author. How about that? <laughs> By the time this airs... It's been a long journey. <laughs> yes, it has. It's going to be even longer, I can tell you. Now, by the time oh. this airs, um, the book will have been out and for sale for a little while. But, um, you know, we'll be coming right up on Christmas sales by the time we air this. So uh, I think it's very opportune. Um, the okay, book fantastic. is, you've, you've called it a... Yes, it's okay. a corporate suspense thriller. Excellent, excellent. And I think it features a protagonist by the name of Heather? Yes. Okay, so tell me the setup to this book. Um, you mean in terms of the actual book or how I came to write it? No, just tell me a little bit about the book itself, the story, sort of a synopsis. Um, well, it, it's um, really about, well, the premise often, for me at least, writing, um, so I started as a poet. Um, so the writing started with a premise, and that sort of formed the backbone of the narrative. Um, and my theory was, um, because I am, I am mixed race, um, the theory was we are um, entangled at quantum levels. Um, so all of our stories are very entangled. It's just part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. So I really took my protagonist, who is Heather, and this friendship that um, evolved around a bullying situation and how these five women became entangled. Um, so I take them through the events of their young teen years and how they became even more entangled. And then they sort of split up. Um, they went their separate ways. Uh, and follow, I follow their lives, but at the same time, they, their actions uh, revert back or look back at Heather and what she is going through. And then they come up against a multinational company and its wrongdoings. And even that entangles them even further. So even as they have gone off into very separate directions that take them into international situations, they are still entangled by uh, what is happening. Okay, okay. And I think that the book touches on things like environmental crimes and uh, things of that nature as well, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It um, really, the, the um, company uh, is in... A lot of my theory was, because um, I worked in uh, large um, Fortune 500 companies, and the theory is, is that it's not so much companies that are doing something wrong, it is some of the people within the company who um, tend to make bad choices. Mm -hmm. And so this one particular uh, person, Michael Saxon, who is the rising star within the company, um, it's sort of, uh, he, he does uh, things in their water division that, um, you know, help the profit line, but they are unethical mm -hmm. and downright illegal. And so it is in the water division that I really deal with water issues. Okay. Um, and uh, that's 
really sort of the premise of the corporate side of the thriller. You've got a great beginning to the story, too. Um, it, it really does grab you. It's, it's very intriguing. Can you tell me, how did you come up with the beginning of the story? Because new writers like yourself, they really struggle with the beginning. And I know that you're not really a new writer because you have a background in poetry, but new novel writers often struggle with the beginnings because we know that they have to be very powerful. Um, how did you come up with that beginning, and, and what were you aware of as you wrote it? Well, this is a funny story because I was sort of horrified when I wrote it, <laughs> and I really struggled with writing it, and I've talked a lot about it because it is a rape and murder scene, and that was really difficult for me to write, write. and of course, we all know that this does go on, mm -hmm. um, but to actually put it on paper was difficult, so to make a long story short, that is not the first scene I wrote. I wrote the entire novel as literary fiction, so it really took a very different slant, and then I started my second novel as I was um, shopping Entangled Moon Around, and um, it, 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 it wasn't making it as literary fiction. It, mm -hmm. Everybody kept telling me, agents kept telling me, this is not your right genre. And of course, as I started the second novel, and that really was a suspense thriller, I realized that that is the genre I need to write in. Mm -hmm. So I had to revisit it from that perspective. So I wrote the I rewrote the entire novel, and then um, I realized I needed a first scene, and so I just started playing around with scenarios, and that was one of them. And I was horrified when I wrote it, but when I took it out, I realized that it was um, and it was necessary for the actual novel. Mm -hmm. Because that's one of the social issues that is in there is the actual um, sort of subsumption of race within our society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very powerful opening, and I am glad that you decided to do it. But what you've just been saying to me, it, it reminds me of what so many crime writers, because my genre is crime as well, and I network with a lot of crime writers, and they all have told me the same thing, that um, every time they try to write something else, it always turns into a crime. <laughs> it always comes back to crime. There's something in our makeup, I think, that, that just drags us back to the scene of the crime over and over. <laughs> well, and I think sometimes that when you are... Um... Uh, somebody who thinks about the human condition, um, you, you really have to look at that really bad side in order to even get to the good side. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think that it's something that we sometimes have to look at and consider. Um, it's just part of our survival process. Yes, it is. And not only that, but in terms of being a writer, it's the oldest story known to man, the struggle between good and evil. And I think that is... Um, it's one of the greatest things that appeals to us as crime writers is that struggle, you know, always trying to make sense of it, always trying to find the justice within it. 
And um, we take we come at it from a whole lot of different ways. I mean, there are cozy writers, there are thriller writers, there are, you know, so many different kinds of sub crime genres. But um, we all seem to be looking for the same thing, trying to understand that struggle between good and evil and trying to find ways for justice to prevail, you know? Yes, yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about your background in poetry. How long had you written poetry and, and what type of poetry? Um, I really um, started poetry, boy, when I was young. Um, it, it was sort of a way of trying to deal with who I was um, because um, I'm, I've always just sort of called myself a mashup. Um, now you've been in, you've been intriguing listeners since the beginning. Now you're going to have to tell us. You've said that that uh, you're mixed race. What is the mix? Um, well, I am um, part Native American. I do have some African American in me, um, and of course, I'm I'm mostly white. Mm-hmm. Um, but my features, at least when I was young. Um, now people just look at me and they say, okay, well, you know, yeah, I can see something. But when I was young, I very much looked like a mashup. I didn't look like a lot of um, my friends uh, mm-hmm. because I had some of the features. Um, and, of course, then I also had some of the, um, I, I guess, teachings that mm-hmm. came from my aunts. Um, so I was very uh, influenced by everyone in um, the different parts of my family. And that, that was something I really recognized was the stories and the parts of my family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is sort of my background. And of course, it was at a time now when we go out into the world now, we see a lot more mixed race and we yes. see a lot more biracial people. Yes, but and a lot more mixed 60s, families, too. We were we were very segmented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, that was sort of my way of uh, coming to terms with my own self-identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fell in love with Shakespeare, absolutely loved Shakespeare, and I loved his sonnets. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't write sonnets. I was more free-form poetry. Um, but I definitely found the, the word behind poems to be very, um, not just cathartic, but very revealing about the human condition. Mm-hmm. That's how I started off with poetry. I think so. I think that's a, that's kind of a common analysis for, for most people who, I, I, I don't know how many crime writers start off as poets, but I know I certainly <laughs> did. Um, <laughs> I was writing poetry from the time I could write, really, from the time I could even print block letters, you know. Um, well, and you know, the language, they, the, um, language is so beautiful and so moving, and you find that it's actual act of storytelling that um, sort of uh, links all of us together. It's just such a human yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a different kind of art. I mean most writers find themselves as real lovers of the arts and I know my husband and I are no exceptions I mean we love paintings we love to watch dance we love music um something about the literary arts is is very connective it really does draw us together 
or at least it certainly has the power to, you know. I mean, words can do so much. They can drive great gaping holes into things, or they can really fix things, you know. I agree. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's in some ways what I had wanted to do with Entangled Moon was to find a way to um, show that we are just all part of the human race and those things that divide us are more things that are in our heads than are necessarily the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree completely. That's that's very true. Well, that's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that bit of that bit of personal past with us, um, and how it how it came to be in your writing. Now, I want to ask you about the sequel because I know you're working on it. And uh, when <laughs> what is it going to be titled? If you're free to release that yet, and when will the the sequel be available? Well, I am actually still working on it. Um... And um, it's the first draft is it's done, and so I'm now editing it. So I don't even know if the title will remain that, but right now it's When We First Learned to Deceive. Mm-hmm. And it really deals with um, so many different forms of deception. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I have a international cast. It's really a lot of people coming together from um, different international communities in a high school Mm -hmm. um, that's just outside of Washington, D.C. And um, it's, I hope, going to be interesting because it's, um, my characters are Thai and Indian and American Indian and biracial and they are thrown into a maelstrom. Yeah, so you've put everybody into one pot. That sounds really fascinating. I can't wait to see that come out. Um, will when it is available, will you let me know? Will you send me a note so that I can announce it to our listeners? I sure will. I would love to. Thank you, thank you. I would. I will watch for that definitely, and I'll make sure to to let our listeners know when it does come available. But this one, the Entangled Moon, for anyone listening right now, is available as of June twelfth, twenty eighteen. And uh, again, it's titled The Entangled Moon by E.C. Frey. Now, um, what else goes on in your life, Liz? Um, You have a corporate background. It's just, it's everything around Entangled Moon. But I do have um, two kids and I live now in Texas. I've sort of lived in a lot of different places. Um, this is where I've set down my roots for now, and I'm just enjoying the natural world around me and watching my kids become these incredible people that they always have been, but they're just becoming even more um, uh, themselves. How old so, are they? Um, I have a, uh, well, one turns 21 this summer and the other turns 25 this summer. Oh, excellent. That's a really, that's a really good age because they become your friends right around then, you know? Yes, they do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We've got, we've got a 33 year old, a 20 year old and a 16 year old. So we've got, we've got the wide spectrum going on there it's like you've lived multiple lifetimes when you do it that way you know (laughs) i 
agree. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm sure they are wonderful. It, it, it's a huge, fun part of our lives. I mean, we definitely would never have changed that. Um, now, do you have a corporate background as well? Is that correct? I do. Okay. Tell yeah. me how that um, how that I led to the writing. In, um, several Fortune 500s in primarily employee relations, which often was um, in the legal department. So I sort of acted as a semi-lawyer, but, you know, I think that a lot of employee relations is now um, meted out to law firms, Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's sort of, it was fascinating, it was a great career, I loved it. Mm -hmm. And when did you leave it? I left it, um, I'm going to say, 1992. Ninety-four, actually, and I left it because um, the company I was working for uh, was bought by an English firm that understood labor relations but not employee relations. Mm -hmm. So they were used to working within a labor environment where everybody was under a collective bargaining agreement, and they didn't understand the non-collective side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they did was they took our impart, um, our department and they cut it by half. And, of course, mine went. And oh, then okay. they had to rehire someone about a year later when they got in trouble with the um, Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was sort of ironic. But I had – I was in the last stages – of um, going to a large firm down on Wall Street, and it was going to be 90% travel and 10% commute down into New York City. And we were living in um, uh, the Mid-Hudson Valley of New York at the time, and it was a long commute. And I had my daughter at that time was... She was a year and a half, and I thought, why am I doing this? This mm-hmm. is just crazy. Mm-hmm. So I took our, my package that I got for leaving the first company, and we bought an inn, a 28-room inn in the Berkshires. And that's what we did for the next 18 years. That is wonderful. What a great story that is. So you've come <laughs> at business from many sides, from a, a deep corporate angle and also from an entrepreneurial angle and um, I want to ask you something because you always hear artists and writers they want to dedicate their entire lives to writing and um, they often want to escape from business but I have personally found that my business background and having worked has enriched what I've got to say in my writing do you find that to be a, a true statement that it's really lent well to your work absolutely um I, it's just such an inherent part of who I am. Um, I think that it would be very difficult to write some of these stories without that background. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was funny because I got a NetGalley review that, um, where the reviewer said she just had a hard time believing some of the stuff goes on. And (laughs) I sort of laughed to myself because I thought, um, there's 
actually sometimes worse things yes sometimes we tone it down don't we (laughs) sometimes we tone it down um and you know i i had to investigate some of this stuff and i would just shake my head and think this is you know just if people knew Mm -hmm. but this is one of the things that slides into my thrillers i think is the fact that um uh, outside law enforcement doesn't always want to believe the stuff happens within these institutions that are such an important part of our economy. And so they tend to sort of turn a blind eye to the things that go on in mm-hmm. corporate life. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. I think it would be just fascinating. I'll tell a little quick story. Um, I always had considered myself to be a pretty fair judge of human nature. And um, the company that I work for, we had this lovely, lovely lady on the front desk. And um, she was just really an angel. Everybody liked her who came when she worked on reception. She was just the nicest lady. I just, I thought so highly of her. She hadn't been with us too long, maybe a few years. But um, she'd gotten to know everybody really well and was just a, a real delight. Well, lo and behold, one of our one of her closest co-workers, uh, well, to back up a tiny bit, I, I worked in accounting and I had started getting calls from some people. And this was back before hacking and all these things were really big issues. But I'd gotten calls from far flung clients saying something odd went through on our credit card. Um, it looks like there was a 10 cent charge or, you know, is your company doing something? No, no, we didn't put through any charge. I would know because I was in charge of that. Well, one of her closest colleagues called Crime Stoppers, what we have here in Canada, something called Crime Stoppers. And they marched in one morning, put her in handcuffs, broke open her desk drawer and found that she had been stealing customer credit card information for every day that she'd worked there for the years that she'd worked there. Wow. I mean, I'm it's not a, laughing. Amazing. I, I, I'm only <laughs> laughing because of my wonderful judgment of human nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's what's interesting is you can always be confounded. It, you look at people and you think, wow, they've really mastered the art of um, illusion. I mean, yeah. they've really got it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the worse deeds they do, sometimes the the nicer the mask is, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, she was just a lovely lady. I hated to hear it all. I was I was so I was so sorry to hear it, but um, it made perfect sense once I did hear it, you know. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing, um, and it, it, you know, I think that as a writer, you have to be so careful. So you have to sort of take those kinds of situations and generalize them find a way to fictionalize them yes. without actually referring to any specific person exactly or situation exactly and you, you don't have to write the exact situation either there's a million ways to find another way to work the same story in a different context but um because you don't you don't want to be writing about you know even now today i don't know what drove her to do those things i mean we were never close personal friends so i have no idea what the motivations were or what was behind it all and I wouldn't want to be trying to jump to that kind of judgment you know exactly mm-hmm. yeah but and it, sometimes you know it is a deep deep trauma 
that, um, you know, gets projected out into the greater world. And you realize that you almost have to have some empathy for the person. And I think that's the thing when you deal with crimes is finding um, empathy for that person, for their backstory. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing is um, really coming up with that backstory. And I always have this problem where the backstory finds its way into the beginning of the story Mm -hmm. so then I have to go back and extract it out and oh yeah that's backstory yeah exactly exactly (laughs) because as a writer and this will be our tip for writers today when you're writing a novel of any kind in any genre your novel needs to hit the ground running it needs to open with the relevant action and backstory is to be avoided like the plague. You should know the backstory. You should have worked it out as a writer, but it has no place in the initial storytelling. Now, just Absolutely. stay... stay... And I, I, I think that's the other thing is, sure, um, I, yeah, I think that you need to be very cruel with your novel when you go into, especially that first editing phase after you've written your, what I call the shitty first draft. Um, <laughs> it's just learn to be really cruel. Um, and, and sometimes that's the hardest part because we like to think that our sentences are these beautiful nuggets. And sometimes those nuggets just need to be taken out. Um, and, and so for, for me, that was really a hard part, even mm-hmm. as a poet, mm-hmm. is learning to be cruel with that first uh, edit through. Mm-hmm. You are you are dead on on that, Liz. Because um, with Carrick Publishing, I've I've worked with so many authors and new authors in particular. They do come at it, and I know I did the same thing. They come at the whole thing with the approach that um, their words are dripping with gold. You know. Yes. And uh, <laughs> you can't question the validity, and it's all subjective and all that, and all that's true. All that's true. However. If you want a reader to have any interest in what you're writing, you'll come at it a little bit differently. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's been just fascinating hearing about that and, and how your corporate past came into the working as well. I really appreciate that. And uh, also now, with the advent of things like uh, Ancestry.com and 23andMe and all of these other things, have, have you... Uh, I. This is a very personal question, and I can edit it out if you don't want to answer. But have you uh, participated in in any of that today? You know, I haven't. Um, However, I do have my Ancestry.com kit sitting, waiting for me (laughs) to do it. And I really wanted to do the National Geographic one, too, because I love the idea of our movement. Same here. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to know, um, you know, you know, I, and I hate getting into the entire blood quantum mm-hmm. um, discussion because I feel like it fractionalizes a person too it's much. Got the, it's got the potential and, to do that, but I think it's also got the potential to bring us together because, uh, it, and yet, you know, yeah. I, I had the same hesitation that you had. Um, when the National Geographics first came out with it, though, I was fascinated from a scientific point of view. I mean, just purely the science of it just draws me in. So I did yeah. finally uh, break down and do the Ancestry and the 23andMe. And um, 
no surprises to my chagrin. I was really hoping for some surprises. Um, but I think whether whether these kinds of things fracture us or bring us together depends on what we have in us at the outset. I think if we're looking for ways to divide ourselves, we will do that quite nicely. I agree. I agree. And I, and I think that that is um, one of the things that I hope at some point um, we can find a way to understand each other is with the Native um, uh, American part and, and First Nations in mm-hmm. Canada is to find a way to um, to change our narrative about what happened mm-hmm. um, so that we don't always talk about blood quantum and, you know, whether you're really this and you're really that. Um, I know. So that's part of why my characters in my first and second book, there is um, that uh, multiracial component to mm-hmm. the Indian story. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to believe that more people on this earth are multiracial to at least some degree than are not, you know? I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that, that is the thing that I keep taking away is that we're, we're really all mashups. It's just some look more mashed up than others. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more visibly evident in some cases, but, <laughs> but there yeah. are a million yeah. ways and to I, make a family. I think National Geographic just, um, they just put out... I think it was last month or maybe the month before. I can't remember where they're talking about um, the mixing of races. I thought they did such an incredible job of it. Wow, I'll have to look for that. That's National Geographic, and it's um, was it a recent uh, was it a recent issue? Yes, um, it, this issue I believe is on plastics. I think it was last issue. Was okay, I'll look for it because it we we do have it delivered. So. Twins who looked very different. Um, and that was sort of the premise. That was their cover, and it was fascinating. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that is. Well, really, Liz, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I love talking to people who are interested in all these things. You know, <laughs> yes, it, it I get, agree. gets us off to the side. But you know, that's what writers do. Every writer I've spoken with—men, women, crime genre, literary, poets—they all say the same thing. They write because they're so curious about life and the world. You know. Yes, and I, you know, and I think that as a writer, you've always got to plumb the depths of human motivation, which is, you know, endlessly fascinating. It is. It really is. Thank you so much for joining us on Dead to Rights, Liz. And please stay on the line for a moment while I turn off the recording. Let it rot. I want to thank E.C. Frey for joining us today on the podcast. And now I'm delighted to bring you this humorous tale of feline heroism by Rosemary O'Bear titled Kitty Claws to the Rescue, which first appeared in 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2017. After a successful career as an internationally published romance writer, Rosemary O'Bear turned to the world of crime, graduating with a certificate of criminology from the University of Toronto and publishing the six-volume award-winning Ellis Portal mystery series. Rosemary also worked in the real world of crime. She was a security officer at the United States Consulate. She ran the office of a halfway house for men coming out of the federal prison system. 
She served as a community relations director assisting women coming out of the prison system, and for 10 years she was a bailiff in the criminal courts. Born in Niagara Falls, New York, Rosemary has long made her home in Toronto, where she has worked as a university instructor, an editor, and a bookstore clerk, and, of course, a writer. Kitty Claws to the Rescue by Rosemary Aubert You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can't teach a cat any tricks. But sometimes you don't have to. Sometimes cats figure out everything they need to know, and then some, on their very own. I guess you could say that my coming to have kitty claws was a trick in itself. I was minding my own business, sitting in my apartment, relaxing, having a little after-dinner drink and reading a mystery novel by my favorite author. I was enjoying a rare moment of silence. No arguments in the vicinity. No rap music, no opera, no doors slamming. No one in the hall shouting plans for when they'd meet again. No gunshots. Not even anybody singing annoying Christmas carols. For it was at Christmas time that she came. Quiet like that was such a gift that I relished it for the few miraculous minutes that I had it. I knew it wouldn't last long, and I was right. Before long, I heard the pesky dogs down the hall howling away. And then I heard a cry that would wrench the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge. At first, I thought it was the cry of a child. Great gasping screams only a few feet from my doorstep sounded through the door itself and echoed down the narrow outer hall, which, though thickly carpeted, seemed to absorb none of the sound. So, of course, I went to the door and carefully opened it. The second I did so, the wailing stopped, and I found, staring up at me, the most beautiful pair of blue-green cat eyes I had ever seen. I also saw in those eyes a look I'd never seen in an animal before. Odd as it sounds, I'd have called that look sweet cunning. But I only saw it for an instant, because as soon as the little gray and white tabby realized that my apartment door was open, she squirted by me and into my living room. I dove after her, grabbed her, and as much as tossed her out the door. I had no idea who she belonged to, and I didn't want to take a chance. But as fast as I tried to close the door, she spurted ahead and threw it. She did this three times. The fourth time, she got right into the living room and pranced across my throw rugs into the far wall. Her head was held high, and her shoulders were poised in an attitude that I can only describe as regal. Her whole body seemed to be saying, This is very nice. I think I could live here quite comfortably. I gave up. She leapt onto my reading chair, curled into a gray and white wreath, mewed softly once, and fell into a deep sleep. I waited until the next day to begin my search for her owner. Not that she was any help, 
As determined as she had been to get into my apartment, she was now determined to stay there. At first I figured she'd be eager to get back to her own home and her own people, but she would have none of it. She wouldn't go anywhere near the door, let alone out of it. So I had to search without her help. I knocked on every apartment door on our floor, even the doors of people to whom I usually gave wide berth. I put notices in the elevators, in the mail room, in the laundry room. I even took her picture and posted it on Facebook and on the phone poles near our place. Facebook was a big mistake, of course. It took me about four minutes to realize that it was a stupid idea for me to try and use it to find Kitty's legitimate owner. I got a bunch of screwy replies, including one from a whole lot of people who posted pictures of cats that seemed to fit Kitty's description, but actually looked nothing like her. I thought I was being careful not to give too much information about where I lived, but I wasn't sure I had been 100% successful, nor was I certain that I had deleted my message once I changed my mind about it. I also had a few people from the neighborhood show up at the door. I couldn't believe how stupid I'd been to advertise the way I had. But, fortunately, after about three days, nobody seemed interested in claiming Kitty. Yes, fortunately, because I soon realized I wanted her for my own. She was cute, she was cuddly, and best of all, she was clever. She had a lot of tricks. Whenever I spoke on the phone, she sat beside me and made little mewing noises that sounded as though she were taking part in the conversation. She also liked to sing. Of course, it wasn't real singing, but if I had music, especially a song with words on the stereo, she seemed to croon along. Soon, I'd made a really comfy bed for her. It was a big basket that I'd found in a second-hand furniture store in my neighborhood. I added a pillow from my own bed and topped the whole thing off with a nice soft white blanket beneath two fluffy towels that I'd been saving in case guests ever came, which they never did. Kitty seemed to love lying on this and mewing gently before she took her morning nap, her afternoon nap, her just-before-bed-for-the-night nap. You'd think she likes nothing except to sleep, but that soon proved not to be the case. She had other activities to occupy her time, anything round that she could get her paws on, an orange in a basket on the table, a ball of fluff from a blanket or a sweater, even a walnut became a sort of cat soccer ball to be kicked across the floor or out from any nook in which it got caught. Her dexterity, if you could use that word for a creature without fingers, was remarkable. She seemed able to lift things, to push and to pull. One of her favorite games was to get hold of some small piece of my clothing, drag it from the bedroom or the laundry basket, and hide it between a couple of the layers of her bed in the living room. She seemed to favor long, silky things, pantyhose, scarves, fabric belts, I was getting used to Kitty, to her tricks, to her warmth, to her affection, to her determination to be near me or else to be sleeping peacefully in the little bed I had made for her that I almost forgot how she had come to me, how she wasn't really mine. 
So when the pounding knock blasted my door, I had completely forgotten what it probably meant. There was violence in that knock, but no more than I had heard plenty of times from neighbors who'd had a couple too many and didn't realize that my door wasn't their door. From others who thought my music was too loud, from impatient couriers, from the landlord when he had something to demand and was afraid that a tenant was sleeping or hard of hearing or didn't want to hear whatever he had to say. I didn't open the door automatically. Of course I didn't. I walked to the door. I looked out the peephole. At first it looked as though no one were there. Then I realized that the knocker was so impatient that he was shifting from foot to foot in and out of the range of the viewer. I waited until I could get a good look at whoever it was. I didn't have to wait long until I saw that it was my neighbor from several apartments down the hall. I'd never had much to do with him, partly because he kept to himself and partly because he seemed an unkempt and unpleasant sort of person, not one that I'd really consider a neighbor, just a fellow occupant of our apartment building. Nonetheless, he wasn't somebody I would ordinarily ignore. It took me a minute to unlatch the door. Again, I could sense that impatient shifting from foot to foot. And the second the latch came loose, the door swung open with a violence that nearly knocked me off my feet. Give her to me! Give me my damn cat! I was shocked, but not as shocked as Kitty Claus. She was still and silent for a moment. Then she ran toward him, first hissing, then stopping dead a few feet in front of him. She opened her mouth, and she started the same awful crying and yelling that she'd been doing the day I found her. Quiet, Kitty, I said, but clearly she didn't hear me. She screamed and screamed. The neighbor's face grew red and his breathing quickened. Give me the damn cat, you bitch, he shouted, and lunged toward me. As I stepped back to get away, I was afraid I'd trip over the rug at my feet or even over Kitty, but she suddenly stopped yelling and ran through the apartment toward the bedroom. The infuriated neighbor pushed me hard. I fell backward onto the couch and couldn't get up fast enough to stop him from heading after her. When I got there, Kitty was standing near the closet and the man looked as though he were about to make a grab for her. Without thinking, I made a grab for him. That's when I saw he was holding a knife. Get back, you bitch! All I could think of was Kitty. I dove for her. She wasn't screaming anymore. She was perfectly silent. The reason she couldn't make a sound was that she had one of my scarves in her mouth. It was a pretty one, one of my favorites. I don't know why I should notice a detail like this at a time when Kitty or me or both of us were in danger of being attacked by a madman with a knife pointed alternately at each of us. Like Kitty, I couldn't scream. My mouth was blocked with fear. I couldn't watch Kitty. I had to watch my neighbor with the knife. He started to wave it. He started to yell, You damn bitch! Give me back my damn cat! As terrified as I was, as unable to answer him, to threaten him, even to refuse his demand, I knew I wouldn't give him my sweet little kitten. Finally, my vocal cords seemed clear enough for me to utter a single word. No. 
I managed to push past him and to run back toward the living room, toward the apartment door. He followed me, grabbed my arm, and swung me around so that I was staring at him. I saw in his face how truly mad he was. I stepped back, sure I couldn't get away from him, couldn't escape the confines of the living room, let alone the apartment, the hallway, the building. He held the knife at the level of my heart. Instinctively, I closed my eyes. I heard the sound of something heavy falling. Had he tripped on the throw rug? My eyes shot open, and I saw he was lying at my feet down in a pool of spurting blood, the sort of spurt that could only come from an artery, a big artery. I stared at my pursuer. I could see that he was dead that instead of plunging his weapon into me, he had tripped and plunged it into himself. As for Kitty Claus, she quickly disappeared. I heard her mewing in the bedroom, but I soon lost track of her in my rush to call the police. The investigation was swift and conclusive. In his effort to attack me, the man had inadvertently managed to stab himself. It turned out that he had a long record of weapons offenses. He'd been evicted from our building, but had refused to leave. At the time of his death, there had been some sort of warrant to get him out. The fact that there were no fingerprints but his own on the weapon exonerated me, and no charges were laid. You may not be so lucky next time, one of the cops told me. It might be you who trips. Get rid of those throw rugs. Lucky to have been saved by a rug. Of course it took me a little while to figure out what had really happened, that this had been no accident, that it was, in fact, a homicide, and that you can't have a homicide without a murder weapon. No one but me ever saw the real murder weapon. I didn't see it at first either, until the day I decided to wash the towels and blanket that made up Kitty's bed. And when I did see it, I realized I hadn't even missed my scarf, only vaguely recalled Kitty Circling, her former owner and would-be captor. Like the police, I had come to the conclusion that the attacker had tripped on the rug in the living room, a fortuitous accident. But now I realized that his death had been no accident. So I thanked Kitty Claus for saving my life and her own. And as she lay purring in my lap, I reminded myself that I had better be careful. It's hard to know you are living with a killer, even when the killer is so darn cute. And that has been Kitty Claus to the Rescue by Rosemary O'Bear. I hope it brought a smile to your face, just as it did to mine. Our thanks go out to Rosemary O'Bear, who is a good friend and a renowned author of the Ellis Portal Mystery Series, for this wonderful story. Are you a published author? Would you like to be featured on our weekly Dead to Rights podcast? We're now scheduling slots for 2019. Please contact me at carrotpublishing at rogers.com and say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'd love to hear from you. Likewise, if you have any questions about books, the book business, or the writing craft, for me or for any of our featured authors, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Same address, Publishing at rogers.com. You'll find us on Facebook under Dead to Rights or under our page. 
You can also look for our personal pages, Donna Carrick and Alex Carrick. On Twitter, we're listed as at Dead to Rights Pod, at Carrick Pub, at Donna underscore Carrick, and at Alex underscore Carrick. All music featured on Dead to Rights, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, is original material composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Look for his work on YouTube at Ted Carrick Music. All the best of the holidays to you, one and all, with love and warm wishes from all of us here at Carrick Publishing and Dead to Rights, the podcast. Free, yet it rots. Let it rot.